Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live. Multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624 or send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me again is Steve Oven. Steve, welcome back. Hey, Noah. Thanks for having me back again. Yeah, I continue to appreciate having you here. Um, so I want to start out by an invitation for feedback. Steve, this is kind of more exciting to talk about with you present. Um, you came up with an idea a while back and said, you know, you talk about serving the community and you talk about answering their questions and being available. Now, the phone lines remain open. So if you'd like to call 855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624. You certainly can call and Steve and I will take your questions live on the air. But some people aren't able to do that. And so the live at asknoahshow.com email allows you to either send questions into the show live if you'd like to do that or send them in throughout the week. Additionally, we have the questions bot, which you can answer or that which you can message uh, inside of the Geek Lab by messaging questions, colon, Linux, Delta.com, and that will put the questions square in front of my face. Now, you can do that throughout the week. And what that allows us to do, or what really it allows Steve to do, is go through and organize all of the emails by topic. And so what we find is, hey, there's 15 users that have questions about networking, for example. And so we sit down and say, you know, there's a lot of people that want an introduction to networking. Maybe we should do that. Or, hey, there's a lot of people that have uh, questions about fiber, how to set up fiber, what kind of fiber, they, whatever it is, right? We should go back and, and, and structure a segment around that. And so it allows us to curtail the way that we would take maybe five minutes to address a piece of feedback and instead spend 10 or 15 minutes addressing it in an entire section. But of course, your questions will always go to the front of the line and we'll continue to address them as they come in. So with that, our first email comes in this week uh, and the emailer writes in, uh, from Brian. Brian says, hey, Noah, can you compare and contrast the differences between Scale Engine, Restream, and StreamYard? I really like the StreamYard chat feature or excuse me, the Restream chat feature that allows you to combine chats from multiple sources. Are there any ways to do this with YouTube, Facebook Live, and possibly with Matrix? Thanks. So, uh, Brian, there's a couple of things that come into play here. I completely understand what you're saying. When you're doing a live show and you want to get interaction from the audience, you obviously want that in one cohesive place. The problem is, the problem that we're up against is all of these different I'm going to call them destinations, places like Twitch, places like Facebook, places like YouTube. They all want to have their own singular experience. And Restreamio or Restream.io is a service that takes an initial feed and then sends it to additional destinations. So it can act as a CDN from the standpoint that it's sending it to other CDNs, um, but really it's acting as, as a Restream service. Now, they're chat feature that allows you to combine multiple chats from multiple sources is advantageous in that way. But yes, that is precisely what Matrix is good at doing. And one of the things that I think sets Matrix apart from other messaging platforms. Now, 
I will start here because it's the truth. The bridging is far from perfect. And Steve, I think you've actually had some experience uh, with matrix bridging and Facebook specifically. Have you not? Yeah, I've actually tried to bridge uh, several things with matrix and some things seem to be okay. And then there are some things that break like really quickly where I have this machine set up and I left it running. And two days later, my wife's like, it stopped working again. Um, and so I have to go in and kick it every once in a while just to get things uh, to continue as they were. So, and obviously that's not ideal. Obviously that's not going to work. But what I would what I would tell you is a couple of things. So first of all, it's early days in Matrix. They're a couple of years out of beta. Um, the bridges are obviously following behind that because their primary effort is obviously to build a native chat ecosystem. But here's what we've done at MindDrip Media on the Ask Noah show. If you'll notice, you go to geeklab.ninja, you'll be presented uh, with a web chat. And that's just a native function of the Element web chat. Um, and so you can view the chat. But we wanted to take it a step further because we wanted people to be able to participate in the chat instantaneously without having to sign up for an account. Uh, and and that that speaks to just our core value of valuing privacy and valuing people's ability, ease of on-ramp, right? We don't want you to have to understand the technology to participate in it. So uh, we've had our developers put together a site that we're continuing to build. It's ParachuteLive.tv. You can check out the demo there. But what Parachute Live demonstrates is that we can build a way to embed a RTMP player so that you can play the stream and then right off to the right-hand side, participate in a chat with no account. Now, because of the way that Matrix designed their guest functionality, um, they had to disable anonymous chat function. And the, the, the reason for that was because there really is no such thing as an anonymous chat function in the Matrix spec. And so essentially what was happening, people would sign up and they would forget that they had an active session. They wouldn't set a password and they didn't set an email. And so then they were effectively locked out of their own account. And worse yet, their username was burned. And so that frustrated a lot of people. And so all of the code that we use to do this is available. So if you'd like to take it and use it, you're more than welcome to do so. But the the short answer to your question of can Matrix do this is yes. The bridging exists. And I believe that we've contributed the portion that would allow your viewers to just show up and participate in the chat. And, you know, the nice thing about that from our perspective is once they start participating and they say, I'm connected to this room. I really enjoy this. How can I sign up for an account? Well, go to geeklab.ninja, click on the sign up button, and you can just sign up for a Matrix account, and then you can be persistent there. But if they don't want to do that and they want to stay anonymous, they're welcome to do that too. It's, it's So it's a, a low on-ramp to get onboarded. And then once you're there, there's an ability to get connected, but we get you connected to the technical people first. So that's kind of what I like about the way that we've set that up. Now, you could easily combine that with uh, Facebook bridging and I'm not sure if there's a YouTube or Twitch bridge, so you'd have to look on that. But you could easily combine that with bridges of other chat services to get that one cohesive chat-like experience. Now, you asked me to compare and contrast the differences. So in addition to just the chat, I would tell you that anytime you're looking at a CDN, you want to evaluate a few different things. So first of all, your goals are primarily, I would assume, to distribute content. So the reason we have a CDN, if I try to just send out a stream and tell everyone to connect to my computer, obviously, then... Everybody that connects, I have to send my upload or I'm sending a stream to that person that starts to eat up my upload bandwidth and it's not going to be very long before I run out. So what do we do? 
We send it up to a CDN, which is in a data center, and they have a massive amount of uploads. So they take my stream one time and then send it out to all the people. So simplest way to do that, Nginx. You can host your own CDN with Nginx. It's just a couple of lines and it is possible to do that. And so essentially what you're telling Nginx is, hey, take listen to the stream here and then spit it out on these different places. So at JB, we used to use that to send to YouTube. And so we could just turn that stream on or spin up that Nginx server, send it to YouTube, and then turn it back off when we wanted that stream to die. And so you could certainly send that to other places like Facebook. And uh, I've done that for the radio station. When we go out to stream events and they say, hey, we want to go to multiple places, Restreamio does allow you to do that, but they charge for that. So they include a couple of of services if you want to do specifically to like Facebook and YouTube and, and those kinds of things. When you want to start going to what they call custom RTMP sources, they charge you, I think it's like 20 bucks a month per extra source to do that. And so it gets expensive quickly. Uh, and with Nginx, obviously, it costs me nothing to just make more entries in the config file. So that's one way you can go. Second thing you can do is you can use uh, Restreamio, Restream.io. And that's a great way if you want to push to various sources and you just want to you want to push one stream out and you want it to arrive on Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube and all of that. I hope you have the budget, though, when you start going to multiple destinations. Now, you bring up StreamYard, and we've not talked about StreamYard on the show so far as I know. We use StreamYard pretty extensively at the radio station, and what StreamYard is is an online collaboration platform that really took off uh, right about the time that COVID hit because a lot of people that worked in media were working at home. And so StreamYard allows you to have multiple hosts connect just using a, a web browser, and it brings you all in into one room. You can talk to each other and hear each other and chat between each other and all the things. And then it gives you some ability to do some switching and stuff like that and ultimately send that stream out then to a place like Facebook. And so it's become extraordinarily popular inside of the radio industry to get that inside the studio, behind the microphone kind of look at what's going on. And so that's not a bad way to go. Things I don't like about it, though, um, one you're it's it's you know, you're paying for it. So there's that. And not that I'm against paying for a service, but you're not you're paying for blue sky. You're not getting anything at the end of the day. You're just renting a service um, because it's cloud based and it's proprietary. And so it's, there's no there's no open source element there. And so you are entirely at the mercy of StreamYard. And if StreamYard changes their terms of service or decides that they don't like the kind of content that you're producing or decides that the color of the sky is the wrong color that day and or just flat out get shut down, there's really nothing you can do about it. And so to the extent that StreamYard continues to exist and continues to work very well, I do recommend it. I do think it's a great tool or can be a great tool, I should say. Um, but I would use it with extreme caution and I would definitely have a backup plan because the, the, the most, to me, the thing that people, that viewers hate the most is change. And so if you start with something and then it goes down or you have to change it for any reason in the future, that's not good for your audience. You've now built an entire audience on a platform or, or using a tool that you have no control over. And so, uh, I would use it, but I would just use it with caution. And then you mentioned Scale Engine, which out of the three is my favorite. Now, what a Scale Engine by default is just a CDN. And so you send your content to Scale Engine and then they, you can embed a player in your site and then you can play the content back. And so you can have a lot of people visit the site and stream your content all at one time. And that's probably what Scale Engine does the most, uh, apart from their video on demand, which I'll get to in a second. But, Scale Engine has a number of features that are not often talked about. So they have the ability, just like Restreamio, 
to push to Facebook, Twitch, and Tube. Now, Alan Jude calls this uh, Face Twitch Tube. And um, it, it, it is the same kind of service. The difference is the pricing is a lot better with Scale Engine than it's going to be with uh, Restreamio and, and other such services. So uh, by default, it's I think it's 25 bucks a month and you get one stream and you can it includes all of those restreaming services so you're not paying extra for those if you want additional uh streams like you say you want two simultaneous streams they charge you just 5 bucks additional a month and so it becomes a very cost effective way to uh to create your own stream but the thing i like most about it you're in control of your infrastructure. So it's your web page that they're visiting because you're just embedding a widget. And so if, God forbid, something happened to Scale Engine and they went under, you would just spin up an Nginx server, embed that widget into your site, and then produce your content there. So you stay in control of your site. Additionally, you have the ability to reach out to all of these, what I'm going to call destinations, so these endpoints like Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. And so even though I wouldn't necessarily focus on those places, it's obvious that that's where a lot of eyeballs are. And so your friends who are scrolling through their Facebook feed would not ordinarily come over to your website and tune in, might stop if it pops up on their Facebook feed and watch to see what's going on. Now, the thing that I think is interesting about that is you have an opportunity then to invite those people to come over to your website and hang out there. Additionally, they offer video on demand services. And so you can have it set up so that when you're done, that content then is available on replay. Radio station loves this. We go out and do a sports event. Uh, they, they cover high school hockey, whatever it is. And people can go back and say, okay, when well, I can click on this thing and I can go back and rewatch that content. That video on demand functionality is absolutely essential in a lot, a lot of ways. And one of the new features that they've rolled out, I think within the last few years is, uh, stream switching. And so you have the opportunity now to have a playlist full of files that are uploaded as video on demand on top of scale engine. And you can go sit down, do your live stream. And in the event that the live stream uh, is over and you say, I don't just want dead air on my web page, it'll automatically switch over to the video on demand section, start restreaming that content. Then when your stream comes back online, you can switch back over to it and they give you a little control panel to do that. Uh, but overall else, the thing that I think I like most is their customer service. So when we're down at Southeast Linux Fest and we have an issue with the stream, I don't have time to submit a ticket and then wait for it to escalate through the little various things. I need to submit that ticket and I need somebody to respond as if it's a critical broadcast incident because, oh, by the way, it's a critical broadcast incident when I'm at a conference to do a stream and I can't get the stream to work. And so you'll notice that we never have problems with our stream, whether we're on site in an event, whether we're sitting down to do a show on Tuesday, this show kicks off at 6.03.30 every single night. We never miss it. And a big part of that is thanks to Alan and his team at Scale Engine who make absolutely sure that our stream works 24-7, 365, uh, no exceptions. And if there's ever an issue, I don't have to worry about it because I have a whole team of experts that understand this stuff better than the people who write the software to come on and say, okay, well, here, let's fix the issue. Oftentimes, it's an issue on my end, and they're still willing to help. And so I, grade A customer service, they fix everything uh, super quickly and, and are, are very responsive. Um, and the other thing is you're supporting FOSS, right? You're supporting Alan Jude. Alan Jude 
uh, who I think he's doing a, a, another podcast now called Two and a Half Admins. And so you can catch him and, and Jim Salter. Those guys uh, do a fantastic job. And so they're members of the open source community. And so I don't have enough good things to say about Alan. Uh, he's been on this program. Fantastic uh, little Canadian system administrator there. And uh, does a great job with Scale Engine. So that's absolutely the, the stream service that we use here at uh, for the Ask Noah Show, and I couldn't be happier with them. Our second email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I have an ongoing issue, and I thought it was just my wife's computer. She's running Pop! OS 20.04. I'm running Ubuntu 20.04. Our computers are next to each other, and she usually plays the same YouTube videos or videos from Rumble or BitChute. After a few minutes... She'll get really bad static feedback to the point where it's unlistenable and she has to either reboot Firefox or just keep playing with pausing, changing videos, etc. to fix it. For the longest time, I thought, well, maybe it's just her computer. And eventually I'd get around to looking at it. However, I played a video from mine the other day. I don't play many. And it started doing the same thing. So naturally, it's now a big deal because it affects me. We both use Firefox. And so I'm thinking Firefox must have some sort of specific issue, but I can't find anything online, people with similar issues. I've never noticed anything with static when I play music for my computer or games or just Firefox. Any ideas? Thanks in advance. Love the show. Listen to you since day one. Thanks, Corey. So, Steve, I'll start, uh, I'll ask, uh, you don't, ha- I, I don't suppose you've ever come across anything like this. Actually, uh, back in the day, I actually did come across something like this. The the most likely cause is some sort of video Kodak issue, especially when he says that he doesn't have problems with, um, say, I don't know, he didn't say Spotify, but he's, he talked about music streaming and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, my gut instinct would be to say, try installing the Firefox Flatpak mm. and see. And that'll isolate it. And uh, first of all, it'll tell you which Kodak is trying to use because most likely the... the um, the flat pack isn't going is not going to have tons of bundled codecs. And second of all, once you get it installed, it'll tell like if you need a codec, it will tell you whether that's the problem or not. Like if you don't have a problem in that containerized envi- or that isolated environment, excuse me, uh, you probably have something. You've got some system libraries on there that are having issues. Okay, so I would uh, here's the, here's uh, some of the information I would like to have um, to dig into this a little bit further. I'd be interested to know what version of Firefox he's using. Um, anytime I hear somebody that is on an LTS, my first thought, of course, is, well, I'm on an LTS and I don't have that issue. But then my very next second thought is, well, if if it's a you know if it's a real tech sound card and there's some sort of weird driver issue. Uh, perhaps a newer version, something has been fixed. And so that would be something I'd be interested to know. The other thing, I did a little bit of looking into this uh, from other people on forums and, and so on and so forth for you. And I'd be interested to know if the issue gets worse when you switch into full screen mode. So you might try that. Some of the things that I came across uh, that I've either seen or I came across online that other people had seen is that extensions um, can cause issues. And so you might try restarting in safe mode or just kind of doing a sanity check and say, hey, are there any extensions that both of us have installed and we both have the same issue? And try maybe disabling those extensions, seeing if that works. Now, if you reboot into safe mode in Firefox, uh, that should disable all of the extensions. So that should give you a pretty quick answer as to, yep, that fixes it. No, it doesn't. Other issues I've seen, I've experienced this personally. I have issues sometimes where the sample rate gets off in in a particular program from 48 uh, kilohertz to 44.1. And um, so there's some apps that you can install to statically set those. Um, but, and so I've had, I wouldn't describe it as uh, statically. I would, I would describe it more as 
like garbled or choppy. Um, and so I don't know. So those are some things that you could potentially try. Um, but if you email me back with a little bit more information, we'd love to dig into that further. And of course, now this has gone out and so I'm sure we'll get some feedback from other people. So if you know how to help Corey, please write in live at asknoahshow.com. Our third email comes in from Reverend Joel Collier. It says, hi, Noah. I just heard your podcast, which included a segment on the pine note. Like you, I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I wonder what you've heard beyond what's currently being reported. Two features I want or need, this is a whole other debate, are text-to-speech and the ability to run Android apps. My my favorite Bible software only runs on iOS and Android, although I have it running on Linux desktop using Wine. I'm getting older, and I need to hear what I'm reading as well and reading on the next page. Perhaps this is my learning style. Have you heard if either of these things will be available now or eventually on the pie note, I thought maybe you might have some insider scoop that I've not found. Thanks for the time, Joel. So I, I'll, I'll tell you this, I, I'll do, I'll do a little bit of speculation, which is of course the, uh, the appropriate and um, responsible thing to do here. Uh, I would tell you that one of the things that I appreciate about the pine note is that they're very open in the development. And so they don't put any arbitrary limitations. They don't necessarily even decide what features are going to be and are not going to be. They just, they build the hardware and they let other people come back and build the software. And then they go, Oh, that's really cool. So from a hardware perspective, it has two microphones. It has two speakers. There really is no reason why you couldn't have the ability to have audio uh, played back, um, you know, voice to text or, or, or text to speech. I'm sure those things could be available. And certainly the open source software is available to do that. Now, whether or not the processing power and the memory and all of that is enough that that could actually work remains to be seen, whether or not that's going to be a high enough priority on the developer side remains to be seen where they're at today. And this, this is public is just that, (laughs) the device that they're going to ship, you have to be ready to write software for it, not write notes on it. And so they're not at a point where they even have a usable piece of software yet, let alone uh, operating system for it, let alone uh, being able to, uh, to emulate apps and, and do all of those kinds of things. But I'll tell you this, if I had confidence in any particular organization or any company to pull something like that off, it would absolutely be the folks at Pine. Steve, are you aware of anything in just kind of a general sense that this kind of technology exists? And if you've looked at the specs of the Pine Note, would you uh, would you opine as to whether or not you'd be able to run to to accomplish these kind of tasks on that hardware? So I would I would guess that that hardware should be able to do um, Anbox, which is a Linux application to do kind of Android um, emulation. I don't know how well it would do because it's running the the emulation. I did kind of poke around to see if I could find anybody talking about uh, speculation as, as to whether or not it would do any of these specific tasks, and I couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really hard to say, though, because PinePhone, like the Pine team, are really interested in having a community that's kind of uh, interested in hacking things together, mm-hmm. and so if if there's enough of a, a enough voices in their community, I would I would imagine that even if it didn't have official support, they would um, allow it to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Even if the voice, even if it's just one voice, but it hits the right developer's ears, might be just enough. Now, 
atypical. Have you heard of something or understand something about Android apps running on this tablet? Right. So I actually speak with one of the developers behind the software stack for the Pine phone. He is also heavily involved with the software for the Pine Note. There is a movement right now to actually, there's a newer version of Anbox that accomplishes the same thing. It's a new software stack, and they are actually working on getting that working on the Pine phone. Now, the Pine tab is arguably better hardware, and they've already pretty much got it working in a beta stage on the Pine phone. My guess would be that sometime next year, we'll see Android apps on the Pine phone and the Pine Note. And so, indeed, uh, again, Sleuth in the chat room says that the SOC is about if not better than the Pinebook Pro. And so he speculates it could probably handle Android apps no problem. Yeah, that's going to be the biggest thing is seeing how it works with the emulation and how much um, the other issue is, is that if an Android app is specifically written to work with the Google services framework, Mm. then that could also cause issues. Yeah, so it would also be interesting to see how many of those Android apps are anticipating a high-resolution color screen, and instead they get a black-and-white display, right? E-ink display? Right. How does that all that render? That could be the other issue, although so far, with how the emulation is working, from what I'm told by talking to various developers, um, that shouldn't be a big issue. All right. Um, so hopefully it'll do what he needs. We'll see what happens. Our fourth email comes in from Dennis. Dennis writes in and says, hey, Noah, I'm trying to prepare a stream for a family member's funeral. I've set up a Jitsi server, but it requires a live stream key in order to stream it. I can't use YouTube live because I don't have a thousand subscribers. My preference is to use the domain I purchased to make it easy for people to attend virtually. What do you think the best solution is? I have an external camera at the church already. Do you think OBS would be a good solution? I've never used it. But I really need a good solution for free in order to stream this funeral. Thanks, Dennis. So, Dennis, I want to start by saying I'm so sorry um, that you're dealing with a loss in your family. Um, I'll, I'll circle back to this first email and say that my suggestion to you would be to use Scale Engine. Now, one of the things that Scale Engine is going to offer is a free uh, trial. So if you go into scaleengine.com, click on instant trial, you'll be able to create an account right there and likely be able to stream that, uh, that service for, uh, for free. Now, what I'll, what I'll offer to you, um, because we certainly want to be helpful and take care of you during a time of need. If, uh, that doesn't work out for any reason, or if you have any issues, uh, you can write into techies at altaspeed.com and I'll have one of my guys set up a stream for you. We've got an account with scale engine. And so we would help you embed that in your site and get the stream up and running and all of that. Now, I think you can do this on your own. I think you won't have any problem with that. I think you'll just be able to use the instant trial, but I want to make that offer. If you're overwhelmed and you need to deal with grief, you go ahead and deal with the grief and let us take care of you. We'd be happy to do that for you at no charge. Um, techies at altaspeed.com if you want to take advantage of that. But uh, to answer the tech side of it, sign up for a free trial. They actually give you the embed code, and so you'll just go to wherever it is you're hosting your site, open up the HTML editor, drop in the embed, and that's it. That's all you have to do. Then from OBS, click on settings, go to stream, custom custom destination, and 
inside of your scale engine control panel, it will give you the stream URL to stream to. Now that's the ingest side. And so you'll take that, you'll paste that in. You get to specify what the stream key is. And so that's how you'll differentiate if you had multiple different streams. So your stream key, key might just be funeral. It might be a random mix of numbers and letters. You'll enter that in both in scale engine and in OBS under the stream key and you click start streaming. And that's basically all you have to do. And then whatever comes into OBS is going to come out over uh, that scale engine into that embedded stream. Now, from the OBS side, you're going to have to get some sources in. So if you already have an external camera, that's great. Do you have a way to capture that inside of OBS? Also, do you have a way to capture audio? So if you don't have a way to capture video, I highly recommend the Magwell USB uh, capture device. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Um, but they essentially take a ordinary uh, HDMI signal and convert it into what Linux sees as a V4L device. So it basically sees it as a video for Linux webcam and that makes it really nice now if you need to be further on the budget side they're a little pricey they're like 300 bucks if you need to be a little bit more conservative on the price side you can use any usb webcam will likely work and the advantage of the usb webcams is they oftentimes have built-in microphones now the audio isn't going to be the best if you want the best audio i'd highly recommend getting something like a Focusrite usb audio interface or if uh, the church has a mixer there and you want to interface to that, I'm a big fan of the Lexicon Alphas because they have line-level inputs, and so you can uh, take a aux feed off of the mixer or main out, out of the mixer and plug it right into that little USB audio interface, and you can have crystal clear audio straight from the microphones. But in a pinch, I streamed my own uncle's funeral this way, took a shotgun mic, and pointed it out, up at the stage uh, and just had a little webcam on there, and that works very well as, uh, as well. So... Uh, I would invite you to check all of that out. We'll have a link for you for a, a USB webcam. Uh, the Lexicon Alphas, I'm not sure if they're made anymore, so you might have to acquire that secondhand. In your case, that might be great because if you're on a time crunch, uh, you can pick it up at like a Guitar Center or something like that or eBay and ask if you can get overnight shipping, something like that. Uh, otherwise, internal microphone of the computer, internal microphone of a webcam might be a way to go. Again, phone lines are open, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our fifth email comes in from Richard. Richard writes in and says, Dear Noah and crew, first of all, thanks for all the great, inspiring shows. I've been looking for a software solution for managing and archiving important family documents. Perhaps you can guide me towards some alternatives. I think a discussion on the subject might be of some interest for your listeners as well as those running small businesses. The solution I'm looking for has to have the following requirements. I will need to be able to organize and archive PDFs. The type of documents can range from manuals to old appliances, uh, not made anymore, to scan financial documents, birth certificates. The documents will need to be tagged and searchable. It's also important for me that if something were to happen to me that my family can understand what the documents are, so I would need to be able to add some metadata to those documents. In order to guide my family to the right information in the future, I'd also like to be able to link to documents. The solution needs to have some degree of longevity. I don't want to rely on a piece of software from a company that gets old and discontinued in a year. Hence, the open source is preferable. And I'm adding this. This is not from him, but I would add that it's a necessity if you want it to be around indefinitely. The archive needs to be secure. So encryption is required. Easy scheduling backups is needed. So if in case of a hard drive failure, it's survivable. I'd appreciate hearing a discussion about this topic since I think it's important and often overlooked. I also think the open source community has a lot to offer in this matter. So I hope asking Noah was the right thing to do. Judging by the way we titled the show, I would say it probably is. Steve, I'm going to, I'm going to start with you. I want to ask the thing that, that tripped me up here a little bit was the encryption requirement, but I'm interested. Have you 
have you tackled this at all? Do you have any suggestions for? I really sat down and gave this some thought. Um, I didn't put a lot of searching into this because of how many requirements there are. This is a tough one because of all of the actual requirements. Um, to be honest with you, this almost seems like multiple products as opposed to one singular product. Like if a client came to me with this sort of requirement, my first response would be if they can do it, they probably aren't doing it very well because of the variety of um, requirements here. Like if, for example, you were to say SharePoint just as a like finger in the wind, SharePoint isn't going to do a bunch of these things. And some of the things that it will do are, uh, let's say, subpar. So because of the variety of requirements that, that this user has, you're going to have a really hard time finding it in one package. I'll tell you what the road I have gone down, um, and it maybe isn't a perfect solution, and and albeit it it requires a little bit of uh, tweaking here. But here's here's how I have uh, here's how I'm store currently storing stuff. Uh, we went to remodel our house, and as part of remodeling our house, what I found uh, was I thought to myself, "Oh, this is going to be simple. It's kind of like what we do at UltaSpeed. We go in and we rebuild things, and then we put them all back. And so I should be able to do that in my house, right?" And it turned out to be much more involved than what I really needed to do was get more information. And every time I'd go to get more information, I realized that that on its own was this little rabbit hole. And so I, like him, I had PDFs, I had building schematics, I had court documents that weren't ever electronicized. They were just pieces of paper that I had to get. I had bank documents, all this stuff. Also like Richard, I wanted it all to be secure. And so what I did was... I never did find a piece of software that could encrypt everything and then make it easily accessible and searchable and all those things. So I took a different approach. I set up a separate server that had full disk encryption and put it on an entirely separate network in my house and then put uh, wiki software on it and use that to organize all of the documents and all of the pictures and all of the things that I needed to put in there. Um, that allowed me to do the tagging and, and, and linking and, and those kinds of things. And then there are just certain computers that are not connected to the Internet that have access uh, to this little internal only network that then where this server and a couple other things reside on. And that allows uh, my wife to be able to go down there and say, well, I need to look up, you know, what the uh, what the what this document was, what, what the assessment was, what the estimate was from this. And she's able to go and do that. Now, obviously not an ideal solution for a number of reasons. And if I'm honest, I'm shoehorning a solution that doesn't fit into something that I'm going to try and make work. But as the best I can come up with, what do you what do you grade me on that, Steve? That's about where I actually landed myself. Um, like I said, this is really hard in one kind of solution. I'm not even aware of an enterprise solution that does all of these things. I, there might be one out there that, say, one of the three-letter government agencies uses, but uh, it's tough. I, I fell down in the exact same spot as you did, Noah. Well, maybe somebody out there in the community has the answer, and so uh, hopefully you we can come up with a slightly better answer for you than that. But uh, if, you, if you're looking for something to get started, I will tell you this, that one of the nice things about a wiki is all of the all of the information is exposed in a very raw form right and so all of the organization all of the text all of the actual 
attachments, which is really what they are, um, are all still there. And so even if somebody like, – let's say the worst happens, the whole thing falls down, you pass away, and your wife takes the computer into an IT consultant and says, help me. I have to get all of this stuff off of here. My, our life is organized on this box. <laughs> the truth is uh, a, 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 a wiki is going to offer – uh, a pretty decent place to start from. And as long as they have the encryption password and they can get the data off of there at the end of the day, it's a gigantic database file and it's all going to be uh, mostly searchable and organ- organized and you'll be able to go and recover the data and get all the stuff back out. So might be a thing to start. Our pick of the week this week is Ventoy, V-E-N-T-O-Y. Ventoy is an open source tool to create bootable USB drives. Now, I... Prior to being introduced to Ventoy, here was my answer. I had a, I have a backpack that I take with me everywhere I go. And uh, if you've ever seen me at a conference, people make fun of it because we go out to eat. And it's like, oh, no, it's taking his laptop. Yeah, Yes, I am. The laptop, com- the ba- backpack comes with me everywhere. And there are certain things that I can just count on always being in my backpack. And as long as I always have my backpack, I can count on those things. Um, inside of there is a small little emergency toolkit. And so I have my, my normal tech loadout bag, which has all of my network tools and stuff for doing installs and stuff like that. I carry a much smaller little pouch and inside of there, I have a, like a, a screwdriver and a couple micro screwdrivers. And then I have a little case and inside of the case, I have a, a, a collection of flash drives and they have every, it has everything from the main distros that we use. So server distros, Ubuntu distros, windows 10 installer. It has tools for breaking into windows boxes when people lock themselves out of their passwords and those kinds of things. And it's kind of my Swiss army, multi, uh, multi USB stick, case. That has been replaced by Ventoy because with Ventoy, I can create a single USB drive that has a ton of space on it and load ISO images on there. So you essentially, instead of having to say, well, I need to install this operating system and it's esoteric. And so I have, I have a drive for that. I do. And so I take that out and go, okay, I load it in there, load the utility distro, whatever it is, do the thing I have to do. It goes back in the, the case. Next time it comes out, well, it's a different utility distro, pull it back out, load a different ISO on there, do that. Those kinds of things uh, take a long time. Ventoy, when you install it onto a drive, essentially it creates two partitions on the drive. The first partition has the actual bootable operating system of Ventoy. The second partition uh, is just a wide open it's uh, ext4 or excuse me it's uh, xfat by default, but you can reformat it to NTFS or fat32 or ext234 whatever. And you just load ISO files on there. And once you've copied the ISO files on there, you boot off of Ventoy and it will pull right up and give you a little boot menu and say, hey, what do you want to what do you want to boot? And you can choose off of there what operating system you want to boot and install. And so an absolutely fantastic uh, little tool. Steve, have you ever used Ventoy? I did. Um, I was going to ask you whether you've ever had any problems with um heat so when i have had the bigger usb drives they often seem to suffer from a lot of of heat dispersion issues so the last two or three that i've had that were say over like 64 gigs or bigger they get really hot they get hot to the touch and i i worry about them sitting in the usb uh port and so something like this um often has been less than useful for me because maybe I'm just buying the wrong drives. But uh, have you ever have you ever noticed these big drives getting really hot? I have. Um, I I've it, flash media scares me in general for a couple of reasons. So first of all, a lot of people don't know if you disconnect flash media from power for long enough, you will begin to lose data. And so I've gone into clients. Uh, I see this all the time. There's a lot of IT companies do this. 
they have either their uh, restoration software or they have config files backed up on a flash drive and they just leave it on site. And in principle, I like the idea. Yes, leave all of the stuff and all the configuration, all the things with the client. So if they ever want to go somewhere else or if they ever need it, they have it. I mean, that part of it is great. Part of it is not great is flash storage when that sits there for three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And then you go back to it. All of a sudden you plug it in and it's corrupt and you can't read it. So that's concern number one. Concern number two, as you just mentioned, is heat. Uh, I've actually had them burn up, not just get hot. They just stop working um, after a certain amount of time. And I can only assume that that is because of of the tremendous amount of heat. So I uh I'm I I I agree with that to a certain extent. I have seen though if you buy the 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 physically larger drives, you know, Sandus tries to make this 128 gig uh you know, USB stick that is a little bigger than my thumb. And so that thing heats up like a bad mamma jamma, but when if you get some of the larger drives, uh maybe they still get hot and there's just enough casing around them that I don't feel it. But I feel like I've had better luck with it. Now, personally, I'll be honest with you. I'm not using a flash drive for this. I have an actual uh, USB external hard drive because I load that thing up. If I'm going to use Ventoy, right, I want every available operating system I can get. Um, so that's kind of the way I've gone with it. So I, I heard, uh, I think it was Chris on the Linux Action Show talking about getting one of those USB cases for an NVMe drive for this sort of thing. And I kind of toyed around with that idea, but I... I have uh, three flash drives that I carry around with me, and I haven't had need to, aside from updating them for point releases or whatever, um, I haven't had need to have more than three, and so I just, I just never invested in that. Yeah, they, there's, I think the one that Chris had was a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a hardware device that allowed you to pick uh, various distros, and I, that was kind of cool. But if I recall, there was a, there was a fluke with it. You had to use a special tool to clean the. Um, to clean the the file system back out. So, but anyway. So, well, he he had two of them. Uh, that was one of them. But the second one, like I said, he went and got a USB casing for an NVMe drive so that he could load Ven, load Ventoy up. Oh, on he this was using have, Ventoy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he got around the whole flash flash drive issue by putting an NVMe in there, which is a little bit better for the heat dispersion and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I would trust an NVMe drive. I would, I mean, I do, I guess, because I have one in my laptop, right? So I, I guess we trust those. But um, yeah, anyway, Ventoy, if you've not checked it out, highly encourage you to do so. You can learn more at Ventoy.com. Our gadget of the week this week. I tell you what, this perfectly exemplifies why this section even exists in the show. Because I come across stuff during my day-to-day work, and I'm like, this is amazing. If I only knew, if I, if I had only known about this, this would be amazing. It's called the Cable Comb Tool. You can learn more at Amazon.com. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Now, this oh, this is this what it allows you to do is take any uh, collection of wires when you're doing new wire runs and so you pull all of your cat 6 cat 5 uh rg6 whatever it is that you're pulling you pull it all into your central point but obviously the cables are all twisted around each other and so it's not a neat little trunk they're all kind of twisted up now you can make it work right and as long as you've written on the end of your cables with sharpie what the other termination point is um it's easy enough to patch them down and looks okay but it looks way better if the cables are nice and neat and straight and so previously what we had to do we'd fan all the cables out and we'd start at the very top and we'd start building a nice neat little trunk and we'd take a piece of velcro and wrap the velcro around comb them down a little bit more and wrap a piece of Velcro around. And I would say it took us 45 minutes to an hour to straighten out a trunk that had been dropped into to, uh, to the data room. This thing has taken that job 
and and reduced it down to minutes, maybe even seconds. Uh, you literally start at the top of the trunk and you put this tool around it and you put this little center insert into it and then you just pull and twist, pull and shake a little bit and it will automatically organize all of the cables and they all kind of fall into their own little holes until at the very other end of the cable, you have this perfectly neat little trunk. The other thing it does is it provides a little bit of tension on the cable as you're pulling down on the cable trunk. So you have a nice, easy place to to wrap them all together, and throw a piece of Velcro around and tighten that up. That just looks, it just looks absolutely fantastic. And so that unique center hub is what allows you to start at any point on the cable trunk and just move your way down. The other nice thing is uh, you can remove any cable from the trunk just by rotating that little collar and sliding it out. And so it allows you to take a cable out if you need to do that. It works with every cable we've used it with, but there is a limitation. Uh, looks like up to quarter-inch cable. Uh, and so we've used it with RG6. We've used it with Cat6. We've used it with Cat5. We've used it with Tough Cable. Uh, and it just works absolutely fantastic. So it's called the Cable Comb. They're available on Amazon.com. We'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, GNOME 41 Beta is now available, and this marks the start of the UI feature and API freezes, collectively known as the freeze. Um, so one of the things that caught my attention in the GNOME 41 Beta is the addition of the GNOME, uh, is it called Calls? It's a GNOME SIP app that is going to allow receiving and placing VoIP calls. And Steve, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this. Just this past week, you were, you set up your own, uh, VoIP SIP server. Does the, does the appeal of being able to make or place calls with a native app right on your desktop environment, does that, does that appeal to you? I mean, to a little bit. Um, part of what uh, Noah's talking about is I was asking about how do I keep my Canadian phone number without paying my Canadian cell phone bill after I've moved down here to the US? And so um, I landed on a company called 3CX and they have apps for your phone, and, but they also have a, a a web interface. And so where this comes back with the GNOME, the GNOME stuff is that because it's got the web interface, I, uh, I'm, I'm not one of those people that needs to have a native application. If it's got a web interface, it's fine. If I didn't have that, this would definitely be of high interest for me. Yeah, I I tell you what, I am I man, I, I as I continue to move my entire workflow to an IP-based workflow, the idea of having this built into the operating system is absolutely fantastic. So anyway, that caught my attention. GDM is also now allowing for the user session uh to be Wayland, even if the login session is XORD-based. And I guess I'm kind of at a loss, Steve. Why would that be a useful thing? Why would I want to log in uh, under XORG and then be dropped into a Wayland session? You know what? I, I actually don't know. I could see why you do it the other way, because I've had so many times where the the login session just fails under XORG. But if you go to Wayland, it, it works. Um and that's fighting drivers and stuff like that. I'm not sure why you do it the, the reverse way. Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense. But it is, uh, anyway, it is an option. And the fact that they have separated those two is uh, is very cool. The GNOME Control Center now adds cellular and multitasking panels. GNOME Disk Utility now uses Lux2 for encrypted partitions. 
uh, and No Music has begun implementing its new design and mock-ups. Uh, Conan Kudo in the Matrix Room has an idea as to uh, as to my my Gnome login session, so I'm interested to hear why is it. So the reason why uh, they're doing this is actually twofold. The first is um, by not having the login manager have to start an X session to start an X se- to start an X server to start an X session. Um, this opens the door for X servers to be started rootless. So normally what happens is the X server gets started by the login manager, GDM, and then the GDM hands over the X server session started by GDM, which was running as root in privileged space, to the desktop. Now, if it runs as Wayland in GDM and then starts an X session for GNOME Shell, then that means that the GNOME Shell X session can be started as the user rather than as root. So it allows the X server to operate deprivileged. This is something that's already exi- that's existed in KDE Plasma for a while, um, but this is uh, this is something that's new to GNOME. Okay. So the other as- the other aspect of this is, um, it simplifies. Uh, it simplifies it, use cases like kiosks and whatnot where. You may need the login manager to go into a simple environment or whatnot. And being able to do something like, say, do a, um, a simple kiosk full-screen Wayland application, you still need a login manager to initialize the user session. You can still use GDM for that, and it can it can then delegate um, accordingly. Very uh, cool. Decouple, decoupling the, the state of Wayland for the sh- login versus Wayland for the full session is useful for a variety of use cases that kind of increasingly go into the specialized territory. But of course, then it comes back to things like VDI and all kinds of other stuff where um, being able to have that decoupled becomes much more interesting. Sure. Thank you, Conan. I appreciate that. Um, so the other thing that stands out to me is as, as I look through things like cellular and multitasking, those kinds of things, and even to a certain degree, the integration of SIP technology, it, it stands out to me that perhaps GNOME is going to make a more cohesive move towards mobile. As they design these technologies, they scale from both the desktop all the way down to the phone and then back up again. And so where you have, you know, if you design GNOME Music and you have a rock solid design there and you can scale that UI down to a phone. Now you have the music app on the phone and on the desktop. And this is going to allow them to succeed and Linux to succeed regardless of the direction technology moves. So whether or not people use end users decide, Hey, we're all going to move over to mobile platforms. Well, that's fine. Thanks to places like the Pine phone, we're going to have a, a nice soft place to land. LibreOffice 7.2 has been released. And the primary focus, over 60% of the code commit, is focused on interoperability with Microsoft's proprietary file format. Now, I will give you two very solid reasons as to why that should be a huge encouragement if you care about Linux and open source. The first is the number one complaint that we get from a guy who works at a company who goes out and tries to tell people that you should be using LibreOffice instead of Microsoft Office. The number one complaint we get is that it doesn't work well with Microsoft Office formats. And so when they get emails from other companies, when they get 
projects that they're we're collaborating on with other places, they find it difficult to use in LibreOffice because it doesn't quite work right. It almost is there, but not quite right. And we see that with spreadsheets a lot. We see it a ton with PowerPoint presentations and then even some of the word processing stuff, although admittedly most of that stuff works well. So 60% of the code commits have gone into solid interoperability with Microsoft proprietary formats. The second reason that you should care about that is the following. The reason that people are using Microsoft Office today and IBM Lotus Notes isn't the de facto standard is because Microsoft first focused on proper uh, importation and the ability to read and write Lotus 123 spreadsheet formats. And so making that a first class citizen is a hugely important thing to do. And so if they get there and it sounds like th that this is what they're working on, you have a much easier on-ramp to tell people, hey, come over here and try the open source one because it's going to work really well. But it doesn't just stop with interoperability. They also have a new command heads-up display. Now, this lets you run or search for commands very much like the heads-up display in the old Ubuntu Unity uh, desktop environment. You can access LibreOffice's uh, heads-up display by going to help search commands in the menu item, or you can press Shift-Escape. And uh, last but not least... They finally have dark mode. If I had a dime for every time I've composed a letter or something I was going to write inside of Sublime Text, then opened up our company letterhead and pasted it in because I wanted to spend the majority of my time staring at a, a, an application that supports dark mode, I'd be a rich man. Uh, to enable that, you head over to Tools, Options, LibreOffice, go to Application Colors, select the LibreOffice dark mode option, and hit Apply. Additionally, the Writer app now supports background fills, so beyond margins, and whole pages adds the ability to set the gutter margins for the page styles. The writer app now supports background fills, uh, excuse me, uh, not to be left out. Impress also gained five new presentation templates and they've added support for multi-column text boxes. So you'll make sure to check that out. Uh, you can read more at uh, the OMG Ubuntu article. We'll have it linked in the show notes. And of course, invite you to download the latest office or latest version of LibreOffice 7.2. Steve, question for you. Uh, as we kind of wind down this hour, any thoughts on Linux's 30 year anniversary? It's, it's, it comes to me and I say to myself, we have gotten to a point where Linux is just everywhere, right? We've got it on phones. We've got it on tablets. We have it in the server. And at this point in society, everything has moved up to the cloud. And I'm proud to say that the operating system that, I've been advocating for for the last 15 years is the thing powering it. What are your thoughts as we round out, uh, celebrate Linux's 30th anniversary tomorrow? So I'm extremely happy for several reasons. I mean, I work for Red Hat, which is just good business all around. If, if Linux is succeeding, then, then we have a hand in uh, not only contributing to that, but also partaking as a, a, a member of the community. But on top of that, like you, I've been using Linux full-time for a long, long time. Like I started with the very first Ubuntu back in 2004 and uh, watching not only how games evolved, which was a rapid pace thanks to, to Valve, but just how I used to have to extract the INF file and load it into Strapper, and now I can pretty much just grab something and plug it in. It's been really fantastic to see how the adoption has gone, even if... Uh, it has led to the dominance of Android, which is a little bit of uh, 
I wouldn't say a black mark necessarily, but it definitely shows how open source can be used to corner a market uh, for, let's say, less than ideal purposes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't be more proud of the operating system that I call home. And it's funny because at this point, there was a time uh, when I first started, I first, I, I tried to go all Linux one time and uh, made it for a little bit and then fell back into Windows for a little bit and then finally made it out completely into Linux. And I remember thinking at that time, I was like, man, it'd be so easy to slide back because, you know, I'm just so comfortable and I know all these things and everything just kind of worked really well. And when I think about that today, it's a totally different landscape. I can't imagine going back to Windows. I can't imagine buying a new computer and going back to Windows 10. Linux has become so easy to use and so reliable, and I just have so much more trust in it. And now I've got my entire workflow flipped over. It would be hard to go back. So happy birthday, Linux. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. AskNoShow.com. <laughs>